Tony, what's up, man? How are you? Good, man. Good, man. How are you? Doing good. It's a, it's a warm day here right now, so it's nice. We've got the sun shining. It feels like a little break from, from winter, meaning it's 45 degrees out. <laughs> and uh, it felt good to get outside, but... Did you go for a run or something? No, just out walking, just doing just doing the family walk thing, a break from work, trying to soak up the sun when we can get it. You know, I haven't even made it out of the house today, so I have no idea what it's like yet. That's because you're you're still uh, trying to <laughs> you're still trying to uh, remember where you just were. Man, yeah, yeah. So uh, for those that are listening, I had told Taylor about a vacation I just went on in Mexico on the beach, and. Whew. Man, is it whiplash coming back in the middle of winter. It's not even that cold. It's just like the the darkness and the daytime and the lack of beautiful vistas and sunshine. Oh, it must have been so nice. Yeah, and the food was excellent. So I gained six pounds in a week, and I'm like <laughs> really good with it. I'm like, man, that felt great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're supposed to You're supposed to gain some weight when you do that. So yeah, what did you uh, want to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the nervous system and the brain and people's response to some of like the neuro work that I do with applying a stimulus, as we call it, and all the different things that can happen and what that means and what's actually happening in your brain and your body when you get a result, whether that's a good result or a bad result from some kind of movement intervention or applied stimulus through, let's say, a therapy or a tool. Mm -hmm. So let's start with what an intervention looks like. What is an intervention? So when I, when I say intervention, really what I mean is a plan or a routine that is put together to try to help a person solve a problem, right? Maybe that's a movement problem. Maybe that's a mobility issue, a balance issue, or they want to improve something with their performance, maybe decrease pain, that kind of thing. Okay. So there's a problem and you are going to do something or have the client do something to help alleviate this problem. You got it. Cool. What are, you know, some brain-based interventions as examples? That's a great question. So everything that I'm really thinking of right now is, is under the umbrella of what we call applied neurology. And so applied neurology is basically when you are applying some kind of stimulus to a person, and that stimulus can come in a number of different, you know, it can, it can be a number of different things. We can go over some of those examples here in a few minutes, but applying a stimulus to a person and then seeing what the outcome, the immediate outcome is of applying that stimulus, that's really what we're talking about when we discuss applied neurology in, in the way that I use it. Mm-hmm. What's like a very concrete example? Concrete example would be trying to think about something a bit more relatable for people. So if you've ever foam rolled before, 
-hmm. Maybe you had tight quads or something. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to do some foam rolling before your workout. And foam rolling happens to, you know, help you feel better. Foam rolling is an applied stimulus. It's, it's a combination of different types of stimuli. But if you think about laying on a foam roller, getting that pressure feeling that you get on your muscles, mm -hmm. sometimes it feels like a light pressure. Sometimes it's a heavy pressure. Sometimes people like to roll with a very deep pressure that even causes some discomfort, mm -hmm. right? There's so many different ways you could do that for yourself. But that's an example of an applied stimulus. And really any type of tool that you might use on your body is an applied stimulus. You know, there's so much stuff out there that we can do now, right? There's dry needling and acupuncture and cupping. And, you know, we can put kinesio tape on our skin. We can foam roll. We can use percussion guns and different vibratory tools. And those are really, really common things now. Mm -hmm. Those are all applied stimulus that you can use in a training context or, or, you know, in a rehab environment. And there are others. Movement, just movement is also an applied stimulus. So you apply the stimulus to your body. And what you have to do after that is really see what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of ties into what we're talking about today. Because a lot of times we just do this stuff kind of aimlessly and we don't actually pause for long enough to ask the question, hey, what did this do for me right now? Mm -hmm. So applied neurology, the way that I use it is we apply the stimulus and we assess to see what the outcome is to try and figure out, is this applied stimulus helping us get closer to achieving the goal? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because when people talk about neurology or brain-based science, you always think of it originating in the mind. So right. the idea of like applying a stimulus like a Theragun to your calf muscle, that that doesn't register to me as neurology, right? It, right. It feels yes, physical. It feels external. But the key here, I guess, is the stimulus could really be anything. It could be breathing. It could be all, all of those physical manipulations that you mentioned, but something's happening in the mind when you apply that stimulus. Yes, exactly. And, and it's so funny, like when we say anything, like I've had really funny experiences working one-on-one -on -one with people where like we're on a Zoom call or something mm -hmm. and I'm like, um, here, okay, what can we use for this? Get me a cold pack out of your freezer, grab a butter knife from the kitchen <laughs> and a tissue and let me know when you get all that stuff and then we'll start what I have in mind because those are all things that I can quickly have them get that are going to apply the stimulus that I think might be helpful. Wow. And it's not the it's funny because it's not the tool that is the big deal. It's I have an idea of what we're trying to achieve and I know what receptors, what nerve receptors I'm trying to activate and I know how that information, where it goes and how it's transmitted, eventually making its way to the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I have different ideas in mind when I'm trying to help somebody achieve their goal of, you know, reducing pain or improving their performance. And so I have to quickly, this happens all the time, I have to quickly think about tools they can find in their home 
that will help them create that stimulus. It's always like just something we laugh about. And then it's really fun because you can just play around with stuff and, and see what the outcome is. Yeah. So you said something incredibly interesting to me, which is, you know what neuroreceptors you want to target with a stimulus. Right. So me being a layperson, not knowing about this, is it like cold is connected to one type of neuroreceptor and pressure might be connected to another? Um, is it something along those lines? It It is. That's that's great. Yes, it is. So so this whole thing with people, when I'm doing more one-on-one work, it all starts with their history, mm-hmm. right? Their, what's going on, history of injury, stuff like that. And then, of course, assessment. And basically what you're doing at first is through assessment and some you know, educated guessing, you can start to figure out maybe what kind of stimulus might be the one that their brain needs the most. And the way that I would do this more thoroughly is to actually assess a person's body. So if they had an old injury site or there was an old scar, surgical scar, something like that, we would actually test their sensory receptors by basically just saying, hey, does this feel like this? As you apply some kind of tool to their skin, mm-hmm. maybe it's vibration, maybe it's something sharp kind of poking them. And you're trying to get an understanding for whether or not they have some kind of deficit with a certain type of nerve receptor. And a nerve receptor is, you know, think about a nerve ending that allows us to sense different types of stimuli. If you have a deficit with any kind of receptor, there could be a cost to that if it's a lack of input that your brain is getting. So let's say you have an old surgical scar and you notice that, you know, over the years, you aren't feeling things very accurately anymore with that part of your body. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's a hypersensitivity, like you're complaining of your clothing brushing up against your skin and causing a feeling that you don't like, those are all potential issues at the receptor level, meaning that the receptor bed has been damaged somehow and you're just not feeling things appropriately or accurately like you once did. Yeah. So there's lots of different receptors and there's lots of different stimuli that they can sense and activating those receptors can be really, really powerful for any kind of intervention. Okay. Without belaboring this too much, but do the receptors reside in the brain or do they reside throughout the body? So they are all through the body, but think like body tissues. Mm -hmm. And so like a simple way to look at it is you have nerve endings in the skin, in the tendons, the muscles, ligaments, stuff like that, joint capsule. And any information that is sensed, that is activating those receptors, will eventually find its way to a peripheral nerve. You know, when you say peripheral nerve, some people are like, okay, what's that? And it's like, well, think like sciatic nerve, right? That's a a big peripheral nerve. So that information will eventually travel through a peripheral nerve and it will arrive at the spinal cord. And then from the spinal cord, it will start making its way towards the brain. And eventually that sensory information will end up at the brain level for processing. So 
like if someone had like sciatica or something, would the tissue be the tool to sort of test for that because it's soft and normally not uncomfortable? Yeah. It, so if, well, this is, this goes into the weeds, um, which, which is cool, which is cool. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to go like over all of it right now, but little by little, we'll talk more about this stuff. Um, this is what makes it so interesting when it comes to brain-based work. The general thought process is that the tissue is really all that matters when you have some kind of injury or pain or limitation. And the tissue absolutely matters. But you can't just look at things from a receptor level at the tissue because you also have to take a look at the other parts that are involved in how that sensory information is traveling. Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a sciatic problem, okay? And you know, you've got those classical symptoms that come with sciatica, burning, numbness, tingling. You're, you're going to want to address you know, the left leg that has the sciatic symptoms, and maybe you've had some atrophy in your calf muscles because this has been going on for a long time. And the point being, if you only look at it at the receptor level, but you happen to have a peripheral nerve problem or a spinal cord problem, or as we go higher up in the hierarchy with some of these higher order systems, you could have other areas that are involved some of the ones we talk about and I teach about in our more advanced course are the cerebellum, which is an area of the brain that helps people coordinate things. Mm -hmm. And then we have all the lobes of the cortex and we even have the brainstem. So the point being there are multiple different higher order systems that are involved in any kind of pain, injury, or even performance goal that you have. The way that I teach about it is it's called the eight levels. And there are eight different levels that you have to address when you're looking at any issue. Okay. But the receptor level is the first level. And that is one of the most powerful ones for sure. And that's where you can apply a stimulus is at the receptor level. And yes. That's our entry point into this system. You got it. That's that's a huge entry point. It's not the only entry point, but it's a good one because it's a big category. It's a big part of the eight levels. We also have other sensory systems that really matter that I work with a lot. We have our visual system. Mm -hmm. So think eyeballs, the way that you interpret the world. A huge amount of information is coming in through your visual system. Mm -hmm. We have the vestibular system which is your inner ear. So that's like your onboard balance, balance. system that helps yep. you yeah, stay upright against gravity, helps you make postural adjustments as you move through the world or you, you know, come in contact with something or another person, right? The way we're able to hold or maintain our posture in our balance is very much because we have a vestibular system. Right. So those are other examples of higher order systems that are also sensory systems. So it's not just about the tactile stuff, mm -hmm. like what we can feel at the skin level, but also about the eyes, the inner ear, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that 
was totally intriguing to me was the drill where you're looking at the pencil and and pencil push-ups. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, for me I was just like how is this related at all to my ability yeah. to touch my toes, for example? Like what yeah. what does this have to do with it? And you know, talking to you more the easiest concept for me to grab onto to to relate like why why would your balance or why would looking at something in a certain way change uh something else in your body is that threat bucket yeah and, and you said something last episode about um i think it was related to the movement box you know so mm -hmm. when your body is less comfortable with moving outside of its range uh its normal box right yeah um it feels more threat and yes. so i could imagine you know have you ever had that dream where like you can't see well and like you're trying to do something but for some reason you're like vision's impaired and it's like really frustrating <laughs> or i can imagine if you can't um balance well like your body might shut down other systems is, is this kind of what we're what we're dealing with here yeah, it is. So it's a good segue into one of the educational lessons that I am always going back to, which is Neuro 101. And it's essentially a very simplified way to look at how does the brain and nervous system work and what does it do for us? And it does three primary things for us that we're really interested in when it comes to this type of work with applied neurology. The first thing is it takes in information from the outside world. So your brain and your nervous system is always taking in information, every, you know, moment by moment, tons of sensory information is coming in through these different sensory systems, some of which we've already mentioned, mm -hmm. like the visual system, the vestibular system, your skin through the different receptors. So the first thing is, we take in information from the outside world. The second thing is the nervous system then has to make a decision with that information that comes in. Okay, so there's decision making and processing that happens at the brain level. And then after that, there is an eventual output. So there is an outcome to that sensory information. That's a really, really simplified way to look at what we need to know with applied neurology input decision-making output, which means that the quality of the input actually will dictate the quality of the output. And for my purposes as a coach, the output that we're looking at is most of the time movement. Mm -hmm. We want to see how are you moving after we apply any given stimulus, whether that, you know, and we're also asking the question, is your pain less? Yeah. Or is your pain more? Right? You can probably understand that with the the knee issues that you've been working through. Yep, totally. Right? You yeah, you just it's like you do something and you kind of got to you have to know like is this is this helping me or not? So that's the output, right? We apply a stimulus and then the brain and nervous system decides what to do with it. It decides your brain decides what it means and then creates the output. Mhm. Mm and that's really the essence of what's happening in terms of a loop when we offer a person's nervous system some kind of stimulus. So when you apply an intervention, 
the idea is to change what's happening in that decision-making process. Right. Is that correct? Absolutely. So why would applying a stimulus change the decision-making process? Because that's, that's all you know, subconscious, right? It's something that's yeah. happening without your direct control. Correct, correct. So going back to what you were describing there with the movement box, right? When, you know, you, you're you moving in a way that kind of exceeds your capacity and your current movement options and how that can elevate threat levels. Like, that's a really good way to look at this. People have elevated threat levels for a variety of different reasons. So you can imagine if you have had an injury and you have now been moving differently, for a period of time, that is going to be a change in input to your brain because you're moving differently. The receptors are taking in different information, maybe less information because maybe you're not moving as much or maybe you're not moving in a way that you used to. Mm -hmm. And what that ends up being in terms of when we look at things at the brain-based level is a deficit in the amount of input that's coming in. And your brain hates when it doesn't get enough information to understand the outside world. Mm -hmm. Because that's essentially what our sensory systems are for. They're like satellites that are constantly relaying information back to our brain. And the way your brain works in terms of these sensory systems is it's constantly taking in information from any one system and comparing it to the information coming in from another system. So for example, the information you take in through your eyeballs, mm -hmm. right, through your visual system is going to be compared to the information that you're taking in from your inner ear, mm -hmm. your vestibular system. And that's going to be compared to the information that's coming in from your proprioceptive system which is like the movement system that helps us understand where our body is in space, those uh, receptors have a lot to do with proprioception. And your brain's looking at all this information and simply comparing it to see whether or not it wants to trust it. It all comes back to trust. And what can happen is, let's say you've had an injury, you're moving differently or maybe not at all anymore, your brain is then registering that as a decrease in sensory input, and it doesn't like that. Mm -hmm. And so as a built-in safety mechanism, it elevates the threat levels, or it associates threat with maybe any movement. And that is a built-in system that by design is supposed to keep you safe. And that is why overcoming issues can be so challenging because you're constantly battling a built-in safety mechanism that is designed to keep you safe. And your brain is more interested in doing that in the short term mm -hmm. than it is in the long term. And it is willing to sacrifice your long-term health to keep you alive right now. Because yeah. it really comes back to survival. So it's very interesting to think about it in that way. And so kind of going back to where we started with this, you can have elevated threat levels from, say, inaccurate or deficits in sensory information coming in from any of the major sensory systems. 
And sometimes that's even called a sensory mismatch. Mm -hmm. And then when you have sensory mismatch, your brain is basically going, hey, you know what? I don't know if I trust the information that's coming in here. And therefore, I'm going to change the output or change the way that we move through the world. So the last part of that is sometimes that means by elevating the level of pain you feel. Because a really good way to keep you from potentially doing something that's not a good idea for you, yeah. depending on where you are, is to give you some pain so that you sit your butt down on the couch. Yeah. It's your body's way of saying, hey, don't do that. Exactly. Yeah. The thing that I thought of as you were describing the mismatch is seasickness. Oh, dude, you're right on. You are. That is literally what I was going to oh, really? use as the example. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's really good thinking. That's a, that's a big sensory mismatch. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's actually um, be good to explain because I just mentioned the vision and vestibular system. And this is kind of similar to what's happening to some folks when they get car sick or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, most people know about seasickness. If you've ever had it, it can be really, really nasty. But basically, thinking about that neural hierarchy that I just described with the visual system, the vestibular system, and the proprioceptive system, imagine that you are on a boat and you're the person that gets seasick. As the boat is moving, you're actually getting proprioceptive information. Your brain is receiving proprioceptive information mm -hmm. as the boat is, let's say, rocking, okay? And your, your brain is taking that information and comparing it to what's happening or what's coming in through your eyes and your inner ear. Mm -hmm. So your proprioceptive system is saying, hey, brain, we are moving. I promise you we are moving because the ground is moving. And your vestibular system says to your brain, all right, brain, I think I would agree with the proprioceptive system. We are moving because the ground is moving. And your visual system goes, hey, brain, do not believe the proprioceptive system or the vestibular system. We are not moving. I can assure you that because mm -hmm. there is no visual information passing us by. Yeah. And so all of a sudden your brain goes, whoa, full stop. I want to believe the proprioceptive system and the vestibular system, but I can't because the visual system has more authority. We actually take in most of our sensory information from the world through our eyes. And depending on who you hear talk about that or what you read, some people will say it's 70% of the sensory information that we're taking in from the outside world is coming in through the eyes. Some people say it's even more than that. It's a lot. And so your brain really wants to prioritize what's coming in through your eyes. And so if that information does not match the other two major systems, your brain basically goes, uh-oh, there's a problem. And I don't know if it's life-threatening or not. And remember, your brain doesn't know the difference between stress of being seasick versus stress of being at a red light mm -hmm. versus stress of running from a tiger. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily know that. It just knows that there is a big disturbance to the sensory systems and the information doesn't match. And that's our sensory mismatch. So what does your brain do? All right, well... 
in case this is a life-threatening situation, I think I'm going to make you extremely nauseous so that you close your eyes to take away some of the, the incoming threat and you get down on the ground and maybe you hold on to something very tightly to support yourself. Wow. And that's, <laughs> that can be what it is to be seasick, right? Yeah. So it literally is a process that happens with the goal of protecting you. Yeah. And that sensory mismatch is the outcome of that. And, and guess what? That is exactly what's happening when you have a movement problem. Literally, that's you have a bunch of input that is being skewed somehow. It's not normal for your brain and nervous system, whether it's missing input or different input. And as soon as there's a sensory mismatch, going back to our original threat bucket, yeah, the output could be increased pain and decreased performance in some way. Yeah. So that's how I look at all movement problems and all pain issues. And so therefore, what, what do you do, right? You, you have to try to figure out how can we decrease threat levels by offering the brain and nervous system some kind of stimulus that is going to help your brain feel more safe about what's happening. And if you can convince the brain of safety, you can drastically change the output to create better movement and less pain. So I've got an interesting one that I've been doing with my knee rehab. And so I've been doing bodyweight squats. And to start, my PT had me do them just kind of like, I'm not really bearing any weight, but just kind of holding a post and doing uh -huh. squats with my hands on a post. And I could get the full range of motion that way. And again, you know, maybe there's a little balance added. Maybe there's a little sure. bit of weight pulled off. But in the context of this conversation, part of me is just thinking, oh, my body knows that in that bottom position, I can always just hold on and take the weight off. 100%. Yeah, that's safety. Yeah, your brain feels a little bit more safe at the bottom of that squat, knowing that you have that kind of stability to rely on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there's some stuff happening there probably with like your your hands helping you kind of counterbalance the squat a little bit. Sure. Which is all fine. But what you just described is one of the simplest regressions that you can make for a movement that is causing you difficulty. In my world, remember, we call it threat. Mm -hmm. Just hold on to something, create more stability, give your brain a sense of safety so that so the output can be better actually. And it's just a great, it's a very simplified thing to do and it works well. I think it would be interesting to go through some of the other interventions that you mentioned um, kind of at a high level and just kind of explain, like, for example, why would applying cold, I'm, I'm assuming that's what's happening with the six pack, right? You're applying something cold to an area Oh, the ice pack, you mean? Yeah, like the ice the, pack. The freezer, yeah. yeah. yeah I yeah. heard six pack for some reason, which I thought was really funny. Like, yeah, go grab you just a came cold back. six pack and a butter just knife. Just because you just came back from vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Is it tecate or? Yeah, so what's happening with when you apply a stimulus like that? Yeah. Yeah, so that goes back to just activating a certain group of receptors. And a lot of times when it comes down to the type of sensory stimulus that I'm using, I'm thinking about it in terms of what uh, spinal tracts actually transmit those certain types of information. 
And the reason why that matters to me is because where those spinal tracts go on their way to the brain, they're different. They're different tracks. And based on the neuroanatomy of where they go, it's important for me to understand that map because in the in applied neurology work, one of the things that we're always doing is activating other systems to try to help another system do its job better. Kind of like a sensory substitution mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. So it's really important to know neuroanatomy when you're doing this kind of work because if there's a structure that is right next to the thing you're trying to improve, you can activate it and potentially get a great result. One of the things I'm always kind of replaying in my head is a rising tide rises all ships. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like always in my mind. Um, some people say things that wire together, fire together, kind mm-hmm. of the same idea. That's kind of part of the craft. So when I'm applying a sensory stimulus, such as the ice pack or something, or it could be a warm pack, crude touch, we even talked about that yep. recently, all these sensations travel a certain spinal tract. And so the two, I kind of break it down as um, you've got warm and cold and uh, crude touch Mm -hmm. are all in the same track. Mm -hmm. And then you've got another one that's going to transmit information based on vibration and light touch and something else called two-point discrimination, which is a test that we run on people where you basically have them close their eyes and you touch them with two points inside a very small radius. Mm -hmm. And you try to get, and you're basically asking them, is this two points or one point? Yeah, I've actually- And then you kind of, have you done that? Yeah, I've done that for some reason. I don't remember when. Maybe it was like Psych 101 class or something. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah. so that's that's a basic sensory test to see how well somebody is able to feel that body part. And then as the radius gets smaller, it gets more and more difficult to discriminate between one point or two points. Right. Now, these are just these are just examples of really how we test those particular receptors in spinal tracts. But the great thing is you don't need a ton of tools mm-hmm. in order to achieve the goal, which is interesting and part of the reason why I'm having clients run around their house collecting all these, <laughs> you know, fun things to uh, to create the stimulus. Next time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll have to go back. I doubt I said six pack, <laughs> Tony, because that's not like something that's like usually in my uh, vocabulary, but it will be hilarious if that's what it's. No, I'm sure. I'm sure this is me projecting. <laughs> um, so anyways, that's how we'll test those things on people. And understanding for me as the coach, understanding where they might be having an issue really matters because then I can apply the necessary stimulus to get the job done. And I don't know if it's getting the job done unless I'm assessing the outcome in some way. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's a movement test, testing pain, balance, strength, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So by activating another system that's nearby, for example, crude touch around a muscle that's been atrophied because you've been laying off of it because of pain. By mm-hmm. stimulating it in that way, your body might 
realize, oh, there's there's nerves here, there's muscles here that are firing. Maybe I can use those the next time I'm performing this movement. Is that yes, sort of what it, you mean? I do mean that. That's great. And really, what it really means is your brain goes, oh, thank you for that missing input. Mm. I've I've been without that input for X amount of time, and it has been causing this threat issue that let's say if we're using like a calf issue or an Achilles issue as the as the example, perhaps a person feels compromised jumping or walking because of the missing input. So once you apply the stimulus and you apply it enough at the right frequency, the right intensity, with enough practice, right, at the right dose, you start to convince the brain of what's possible. And your brain goes, thank you very much. I am now going to grant you the ability to jump and walk, you know, the way that you want to, the way that you once did. Yeah. I sort of imagine the brain just sort of taking an inventory all the time. Like, is this there? Is this there? Check, check, check. And then when something's not there, it, it shuts it down. That's it. That's that's when threat goes up, and and that's what really alters our ability to move through the world. You're applying interventions based on understanding uh, neuroanatomy, based on understanding the different types of stimulus that you can use. Something that has sort of fascinated me since we started talking is the idea of the placebo effect. Right. And my understanding of the placebo effect is essentially you give one group a stimulus and you give another group a placebo that looks or acts like stimulus but isn't actually doing it. Right. And you record the results and some people improve uh, noticeably or at least em empirically measurably, right, with right. placebo. Now... I'm talking about this in a very general context, mm -hmm. but in my mind, it sort of opened this question mark of if I take a sugar pill and I think it's going to make my knee feel better in a range of motion and I experience that, what happened? And, and is it any different than any of these other right. interventions that you're discussing? Right. Yeah, that question mark is in my mind as well. Truthfully, I don't know what is happening when a placebo effect happens and it's and it's successful for a person. Like I don't know what's really happening in the brain precisely other than your brain was just convinced of something. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the power of convincing the brain. And and that's really the same thing that I'm trying to do with helping people with any kind of movement intervention is I'm trying to convince their brain and show their brain what is possible mm -hmm. so that you can have more confidence in what you're doing. So with a placebo effect, I mean, it's really interesting and it actually makes me think of uh, a while ago, I read some an interesting article that that cited some different studies that had happened with what they were calling sham surgeries. 
meaning I think it was actually the one I remember reading was about like meniscus surgeries. Okay. People that went in and got surgery for their meniscus problems, but they were sham surgeries, meaning they got cut open. I think that's how it went. They got cut open, but nothing was done to their uh to their tissue. Wow. They got they got sewn back up and of course they wake up and it's like, all right, we we did what we needed to do. Congratulations and uh start the you know, start the recovery process. Wow. And I, I forget what the like I'd have to go back and find that. I'm not sure but it was it was actually really interesting because they said that the outcome was that the sham surgeries were just as successful as the non sham surgeries. Yeah. With yeah, with these and it's just like really wild to think about that. And it goes to show you how powerful it can be when you convince the brain of something, right? Convince the brain that you're more safe, right? That something has been done that's going to help you. It can create some amazing results. With the work I do, I'm not really sure if or when it's a placebo. Hmm. And and, and I, I those thoughts really ran through my mind quite a bit when I was first getting into this style of work. But having worked with so many different people and seeing that the speed of the nervous system is literally instantaneous, yeah. meaning when you apply a stimulus, in fact, when I first originally learned about this, they used, I think it was like 275 miles an hour. The information from an applied stimulus reaches the brain, there's processing that happens, and mm -hmm. then there's there's an outcome, there's an output based on that applied stimulus. 275 miles an hour. And when you're applying a stimulus to different people and you see all the varied results that you get, you kind of stop caring or even wondering if it's a placebo yeah. because the person in front of you is this constantly changing being that, you know, you're, you're getting multiple different kinds of responses from them based on what you're doing. Yeah. But it, it does make me think about this. In the past, especially when I was doing a lot more in-person, one-on-one work with people, I would have clients that didn't want me to fail, right? Mm. They, they were very emotionally attached to what we were doing. One, because they just liked me. And two, because they liked the information. Yeah. They liked working with a coach who was thinking about it very thoroughly, assessing, reassessing. It made them feel engaged. They liked the process. Therefore, they didn't want me to fail. And it took me uh, several years before I caught on to this and, and started addressing it. But I actually ended up addressing it and still do. And I tell people, make sure that you don't emotionally attach to what we're doing here with the results. Because some people would actually not want to tell me they got worse mm -hmm. from any kind of stimulus because they didn't want me to feel bad. And I had to reassure people, I don't feel bad. Yeah, I'm just gonna find the next best stimulus that then helps you. But when I was learning like early on, when I was like getting into all this and I even had like imposter syndrome and you know, there was so much information, you're trying to you know, go through it all and figure out like, you know, how do I use this and most importantly, you have to have the courage to use it yeah. because it's it's a lot. 
um, I would I would have to address this with people and make sure that they weren't kind of involved in changing the output based on how they felt about me or what we were doing. So I, I address that now and I'm like, listen, don't emotionally attach to any of the results that we're getting. If you get worse, I want to know about it because that's information that helps me. Mm-hmm. And just we're going to together go through this process and just mark our findings and move on. And that really helps. But that's kind of I've always wondered, like, how much did those like in an instance when that was happening, how much did that alter the results we were getting? Yeah. And I think in some instances, it probably helped if uh, if they liked me as the coach and they liked what we were doing, it most likely helped them get better and faster results. Yeah. It reminds me of the, I think I read somewhere and you never know with these things like, Oh, I remember this like statistic or whatever. Is it true? But essentially for therapy, like they rated a bunch of different types of therapies in terms of their success from just like a counselor to like a cognitive psychologist to a behavioral, you know, like all these different and essentially, it was like, if you go to any of these people, it has pretty much the same success rate across disciplines, across levels of education of the practitioner. You know what I mean? It's like, right. it was more about the process of doing it and like actively working on it. It seemed like that was more yeah. important than the specific tool that they were using. Um, again, I, yeah. I don't have the data in front of me, so I can't say that with any certainty, but that's the gist of it made me think of that. Yeah, I know exactly what what you mean by that. And, you know, as it made me think about something that I've been saying for a while that I that I learned a long time ago. And, and that is that uh, one of the best ways to stay in chronic pain hmm. is to go see five or more professionals that eventually tell you, sorry, my tools aren't working and I don't know how to help you. And I think that that's like another, it, it made me think of that because it's another one of those experiences where you're convincing the brain of what you hope is not true when you're on that journey to trying to get out of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And if you have multiple different professionals tell you, sorry, I'm not sure why you're feeling what you're feeling, it validates what you're hoping is not true. Mm-hmm. And my belief is it then makes it harder and harder to actually get out of that that cycle. Yeah, yeah. Belief is powerful. And and when you think about it within the framework that you've outlined here, it makes sense that what you believe consciously would affect what your body is perceiving in terms of stress and threat. And Absolutely. If you're upset, if you're stressed about it, you're sending these signals and your brain's probably like, oh, something's not good. That could cascade downstream, right, to these other uh, systems. So Absolutely. Yeah, I have a friend kind of going through that exact thing right now. He had terrible migraines and just kind of would wipe him out. Um, And so he's like flown across the country. He's gone to like different doctors and stuff. And, uh, yeah, the, the one intervention that, that really helped was actually, uh, I think it was basically a physical therapist that 
just gave him like the most intense massage he's ever had in his life. <laughs> Interesting. And he was like, somehow that unlocked something that, that seemed to help and gave him hope. But, but yeah. He, Interesting. It wasn't like a, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna give you this medicine or it's not this, you know, it was just uh, something sort of unexpected. Yeah. So I love clues like that. Mm -hmm. So when I do, when I do history intakes with people, one of the things I have them tell me is, if, especially if we're trying to deal with some pain issue or something like migraines, I will ask you, what can you make me a list of the things that you think make you better? Hmm. And can you make me a list of the things that you think are definitely making you worse? And I look at that because it gives me information. But then I look at the stuff that people tell me might be making them better. Like with your buddy, maybe he went and got, you know, a deep tissue massage again. And he's like, you know what? This really is doing something. It unlocks something. And for some reason, it's affecting my my headaches. So I, I would come along and go, oh, interesting. Deep tissue massage. That's creating crude touch. Crude touch travels the spinal thalamic tract. And what if I give you more spinal thalamic activation mm. and sensory inputs? Could we replicate that exact same thing for you only when you're at home, you know, in the evening, relaxing, watching TV? And so those types of clues are awesome because I can look at this is this is literally why I love neurology is because before I learned all this stuff as a movement coach, it was always it always seemed as if there was an argument happening about whose philosophy or method was better. Mm, right. And when you don't when you don't have a lot of information, you just you can't help but feel like, am I doing the right stuff? Do I have the right tools? Like, am I am I studying stuff that's actually going to help me help people? And this is how I felt early on. When I started getting into applied neurology, I realized that once you understand neuroanatomy, you can run anything you want through the filter mm -hmm. of neuroanatomy and analyze it a little bit to figure out what is it actually doing to the brain? What is it about this thing that your brain either likes or dislikes? And if you know enough neuroanatomy, then you can start going, oh, okay, so that's activating these receptors. Those receptors travel, you know, this pathway. Mm -hmm. That pathway, you know, is next to, you know, whatever the case. And then you can start creating a stimulus that's actually going to help a person in the same way. I do it constantly. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've found a framework that can accommodate all of these other more narrow methodologies, right? Right. Yeah. That's so cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to address in terms of interventions? Well, actually, you know what was on my mind? is addressing this. When we're talking about applied neurology, we're talking about applying a stimulus and getting an immediate outcome. There are a lot of, well, let me just start by saying this idea is now becoming more and more popular. We're starting to see things, you know, make their way into social media, using different types of applied stimulus to create an immediate result. Some people call it resets, right? Nervous system resets. Some people call it nervous system hacks, mm. okay? Other people, you know, there's, there's different educators approaching it in different ways. And some of those educators 
actually say that these are hacks and brain tricks and that it's useless. And I always chuckle at that because to me, if you're thinking that being able to instantly change a person's performance and how they feel, if you're thinking that's useless, then you don't know the power yet of what this can do. You don't know what to do with the information. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever kind of come across this stuff and it's, you, you know, those types of words, hacks and tricks are being used, just understand that it's only a hack or a trick if you don't know what to do next. Yeah. And so that's important because the end goal is to understand what kind of stimulus is helping a person and then try to offer their brain and nervous system that stimulus at the right dose and the right intensity so that you can constantly move the needle in the right direction. And this is literally why I can be so successful helping a person improve their performance or decrease pain very quickly. And it's also the reason why even our listeners can start to do the same by simply assessing their response to different drills. Mm -hmm. Because once you start building that high payoff toolbox, guess what? You don't need to know any of this brain talk. You don't need to know the different pathways and all the neuroanatomy. That's just for nerds, you know, (laughs) really like me and, and so many others. But you just need to know enough to apply the stimulus, see what the outcome is based on how you're moving or how you're feeling. And then guess what? If it's helping you, do more of that. Yeah. And if it's not helping you or if it's even making you worse, that's the cue that you want to give yourself permission not to do that stuff right now. And this sounds so simple, and that's because it is. Yeah. And it can really work for anybody, regardless of your training. You don't have to be a movement professional. We have people in our membership being incredibly successful with this, using this type of of information. And real quick uh, story. This is just a couple of weeks ago. I'm just finishing up our advanced course called the Neuro Dojo. We teach it once a year at this point. And it's a lot of fun because for me as a coach, I get to go much deeper into the neuroscience and just really kind of relate all this neuroscience to movement. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I woke up with left knee pain mm. and it wasn't terrible. It was just like that annoying, like, hey, come on, why did I wake up with this? Of course, it was jujitsu related. Uh, no injury event. Where was the pain? It was like, uh, it was kind of like um, front of the knee, front of my left knee. Okay. Yeah, it kind of uh, felt like quite a bit of stress had been put on my uh, patellar tendon, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But no injury event. You know, I don't remember anything happening and just woke up the next morning. And guess what? Threat levels were up from a late night class and probably getting beat up. (laughs) So I was going about my day doing my work and I was like, man, I'm a little lazy. I don't know if I want to start going into the toolbox right now. I've got a lot of other things I got to do. And then it dawned on me, oh, I'm going to make a homework assignment for the people in our class and see if we can create some dialogue around how to solve my left knee pain. Nice. So I went into our community page And I was like, hey, guys, here's what's going on. I woke up randomly with this left knee pain. I don't know why. I don't have any other information to give you. But here's what we're going to go off of. And 
multiple people responded and they were like, oh, okay, well, first I want you to assess your cerebellum. And I was like, all right, nice. Right. So we already started. So like it started like it started turning into this thing. And I'm like, okay, that's impressive already. Let's keep going. And the uh the way the story ends, it's so cool. We had two people create protocols for my left knee pain. And one of uh, th- these are both people who are not movement professionals. They're taking this course from us because they're just interested in learning more. Yeah. Um, they do have that kind of analytical brain. I think one of them's a software designer. Um, I forget what the other one does right now, but they're very smart people. And they built me these protocols for my left knee pain. And they were like asking me, okay, like assess your cerebellum. Like what's, what is that doing? Like, okay, uh, you know, what's your brainstem doing? Like how do, it was really cool. And they both came up with two different protocols that were fairly different from one another. I did the first one in the morning and it reduced my pain from like a five to a two after one round. It was like a couple different exercises. And I was like, that's awesome. So I went into the community page and typed back to them. I'm like, nice, we're on the right track. And somebody else designed me one that was a little bit different. And that took my pain to a zero. Wow. And I was like, awesome. We did it. Okay. And actually, the one that worked the best for me was, um, let's see. It was, oh, this is, this is funny. So left knee pain, the protocol that worked for me was a right-sided elbow figure eight, which is a mobility drill that kind of looks like a figure eight. It's a mobilization for the elbow. Mm-hmm. So right elbow figure eight. And at the same time, I was smelling, uh, it was, uh, it was like uh, peppermint or something. Okay. Uh, it was like a essential oil. Mm-hmm. I was smelling, uh, the peppermint through my left nostril mm-hmm. at the same time as doing a movement drill with my right elbow and my pain went to a zero. And then, um, and there's reasons why, like right. that was not random, which is so cool. <laughs> That's why I was like so proud of these guys because that was like really, they were ninjas. Like yeah. that was great applied neurology. But I, so I did that protocol and my pain went to a zero and I was like, awesome. And I'm like in the community page and I'm like, pain is gone. And then I ended up doing the same drill later that afternoon because I started to feel a little bit of tenderness coming back. Mm-hmm. I hit it one more time pain disappeared. And then that was good. The next day I woke up, no pain, and I never had to do it again. So it worked fast, likely because it wasn't serious to begin with. It was more of like training stress, Mm -hmm. but it would have continued to annoy me had I not, you know, done something about it. And maybe it would have lasted, you know, a few days to a week or something. But I was so fired up because I was like, that is awesome. These two people in our, in our program just solved my knee pain without me needing to be there. Yeah. And they're not even movement professionals. And just to give you an idea, this is kind of cool. So we have a whole theory that we teach called opposing joint theory. And so basically every joint in your body has an opposing relationship to another joint. So the opposing joint to the knee, to the left knee is the right elbow. Okay. And there's relationships throughout the whole body. So um, we've got ankle to wrist shoulder to hip. Uh, There's some interesting ones that involve the spine too, thoracic spine to lumbar spine, pelvis to cervical spine, stuff like that. It's really cool. And And these tend to all kind of wrap across the body, right? Which is why left to right and right to left. Yeah. So 
what you're probably visualizing is more of like the fascial sling stuff mm-hmm. that you see. Yeah. yeah. And and I believe that that probably like biomechanically that probably overlaps with what I'm describing. But this is more of like a neurologic concept okay. where basically when you when you activate or when you move, let's say your right elbow, there is actually neural information or firing happening that's registering in your brain on your brain's map for your left knee. Okay, it's kind of a, mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a simplified way to look at it. It's called opposing joint theory. And opposing joint theory is like a heavy hitting powerhouse thing you can do when there's pain issues and you want to try to solve pain really quickly. It's not always 100% going to work, but when it does work, it feels like cheating. It's really, it's really cool stuff. So I did an opposing joint drill with my right elbow for my left knee. And the reason I was smelling the, uh, the peppermint or whatever it was through my left nostril is because smell, the way that it routes through your brain, is going to activate the left side of the brain if you smell on, through the left nostril. Mm-hmm. And when your left brain is activated, it will act on or fire down into your left brainstem. And your brainstem is one of the structures that's highly involved for inhibiting pain. So that means we, we move the right elbow, which also activates your right cerebellum, and that is going to activate the left brain as well. So basically, this person created me an opposing joint drill combined with a cerebellar drill combined with a left cortical drill combined with a left brainstem stimulus, and boom, my pain was gone. Holy and so that's an example. Yeah. yeah, that's what I that that is literally what it means. And this is what we teach in our advanced course, the Neuro Dojo. We teach people this neuroanatomy, and we teach them how to use movement drills and all these other cool little applied stimulus like smell, right? And we teach you how to package it in a way that activates the part of your brain that needs to be activated in order to solve the problem, whether it's pain or mobility or something, or improve your performance. So it's really, really fun stuff. And when it works, it's cool. Yeah, that's so powerful. A, that the interventions work as well as they do. And B, that people that you've been working with are now able to diagnose something, prescribe a, a stimulus, right? Yeah. And then you do the assessment and see how it works and figure out which one's the best and boom, you got it. knee pain's gone. You got it. And then the last thing I was going to just sort of highlight was, you know, you nipped this in the bud on day one. Had you stayed off of that knee and it had been inflamed and you had been, your body had been guarding it and maybe you weren't using your knee. So when you were doing something in jujitsu the next day, maybe you weren't using optimal mechanics and it was easier to strain something you know i could see that story going a completely different direction totally without an intervention and your body just going from a little problem to a bigger problem totally and that's that it is important to you know we talked about this not long ago right move right away yeah move right away to try to help decrease threat but you're absolutely right intervening with it fast always a good plan do it thoughtfully, assess, reassess, make sure what you're doing is healthy for your brain and your body and giving you the result that you want. It's a good way to go. And it definitely, I think, will take care of issues 
before they can turn into something else. All right, that's it, Tony. If you guys want to learn more, please follow the podcast, check out the website and the dojo and come along for the ride. I promise you'll learn valuable lessons and build a tool set that will help keep you training pain-free for years to come. Thank you all for listening.